You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Reverend Dr. Serene Jones is the 16th president of the historic Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Founded in 1836, Union is an ecumenical seminary, and it is the oldest independent seminary in the United States. Among former faculty I'm particularly aware of at Union are Philip Schaff, Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, James Cone, Walter Wink, and W.D. Davies. The well-known Cornell West is currently the professor of religious philosophy and Christian practice. I have known Union Theological Seminary for its reputation in progressive Christian thought, especially in the areas of social justice, black theology, and feminist theology. Dr. Jones is the first woman to head the 182-year-old institution. She occupies the Johnson Family Chair for Religion and Democracy. She is also a past president of the American Academy of Religion, which annually hosts the world's largest gathering of scholars of religion. Dr. Jones began her post as president of Union Theological Seminary after 17 years at Yale University, where she was the Titus Street Professor of Theology at the Divinity School and chair of the university's program in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. Prior to her time as a faculty member at Yale, she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Oklahoma, a Master of Divinity degree from Yale Divinity School, and a Ph.D. in theology from Yale University. Dr. Jones is an ordained minister in both the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and the United Church of Christ. She is the author of several books, including Trauma and Grace, and most recently, her memoir, Call It Grace, Finding Meaning in a Fractured World. Welcome, Dr. Serene Jones, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Oh, well, David, thank you for what a beautiful introduction you offered. And I'm so excited to be here and be in conversation with you today. Well, good. Well, Dr. Jones, there are lots of people on the move spiritually these days. And one option which is being considered more and more is the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. Now, this is not new spiritual ground in your story. As you say in your book, Call It Grace, this was the neighborhood in which you grew up. It was part of what you describe in your book as the prairie theology of your raising in the church, which we share the Christian church disciples of Christ. Could you tell us more about all of this? Oh, yes. And thank you for that question. I love um, talking about that disciples of Christ background and upbringing because when I have conversations about universal salvation, it wasn't in fact until I got to seminary that I started realizing there were so many people who didn't believe in universal salvation. I grew up thinking, well, of course, this makes so much sense. Why would anyone believe anything else? For those who don't know much about the Disciples of Christ, um, it was a coming together of Southern Baptists and Presbyterians. Um, I like to think it was the best of both. It has a big dose of Calvinism in it, but it has a a low church polity and believer's baptism and a real focus on personal relationship with Jesus. But at the heart of all of that is the profound sense that on that rugged frontier, which my own great-grandparents crossed in a covered wagon to be in the first land run in Oklahoma, was a profound sense that God's 
love, the grace of God was so powerful, so comprehensive and expansive that no matter what the world did to you, and no matter how you in your own messy way responded to what the world gave you, you were loved by God and you were saved by God. Salvation is not a competition. It is a gift that is bestowed upon all. The task of Christian living is to wrestle with whether or not we can accept the fullness of this grace that is offered to us despite whether or not we earn it according to how we live or what we do. So it's it's not a game. It's not a competition. There's no ladder that we're competing to climb up to heaven fastest on by nature of our works. The fundamental truth is God loves us all and brings us into eternal salvation together. In your book, you wrote, we believe God bonded God's self to the world by promising to love humanity. That God bond is another word for grace. With respect to the human side of that bond, it's complicated. We are bound to God no matter what. Our names are on the contract of grace, even though our hands never actually sign off on it. Our covenant with God is not a two-way street. If we know grace, then we can consciously participate in God's love, although never as an equal partner. If we don't know it, God's love holds steady anyway. That's how strong divine love is. Given how unsteady and conflicted we are, God's covenant also includes the promise to forgive us our sins. Grace and forgiveness in God are two sides of the same divine love coin. I thought you put that really well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, your your father had some ideas about this. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was like for your dad to be a minister and to hear his hear his ideas? Well, I, as I often say to people, I went into the family business, which not very many theologians get to claim. Uh, my father was an academic theologian, the PhD in systematic theology, and uh, spent most of his life teaching students the content of the Christian faith. He also was in the administration. Uh, he was dean of the seminary at Phillips University and then president of Phillips University and also was at Christian Theological Seminary. So he wrote as a theologian, he taught as a theologian, and he led as a theologian. And because of that, our childhood, and when I say our, I mean myself and my two younger sisters, grew up in a household where the names Kierkegaard, Karl Barth, Spinoza, John Calvin were like household words. It was almost as if we were growing up with them living in the closets somewhere and they would be <laughs> let out occasionally. So another shock for me when I went to college was to find out that there were very educated people that had no idea who Kierkegaard and Karl Barth were. They were so much a part of the water I swam in and to this day continue to. So I, I'm very grateful to my father for his theology and for his grounding us in a profoundly and powerfully universalist understanding of God's grace. When I didn't grow up going to any specific kind of church, as a matter of fact, I was kind of scared off of church by some, I'll just call it glancing blows with fundamentalism. But when I was in college at Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas, I discovered the Christian church, Disciples of Christ, and it was such a different experience. It was a church that didn't tell me what to think, but told me to think. And they said, you know, if I ask a question, they weren't quick to give me an answer to it. They were quick to say, well, good question. Keep asking good questions. Here's some different ways that people have answered this good question that you've asked. What 
What do you think about it? I, I tell people it was, uh, as I experienced growing up, I would go to churches, and the main thing I got was something about hell. But when I went to the Christian church, what I always got was something about love. Mm. And, and I sort of, so I say, you know, this is a sort of a simplistic way. It was just my experience. It was a love church. I, I, when I went there, it seemed like they just kept trying to find ways to tell me somehow that God was love and that Jesus helps us to know about this and that we should follow him. And so it was a kind of a simple thing. And they said, you're going to add some theology to this as you go on. But really, that's that should always be kind of the center of everything. And there was also, I had a chance to go to seminary. When I got to seminary, there was a real focus on seminary on what about people that are experiencing social injustice or who are on the margins or who feel left out, that they've got the bad end of the stick. And so there was a real emphasis there on on social justice and trying to get our to, to understand how the world might look from marginalized eyes or from a marginalized experience. And so Union Theological Seminary has a history of rigorous engagement around these social justice and inclusion issues. So could you tell us a little bit about how that journey worked for you? Well, yes, and you describe disciples' theology so simply and clearly and beautifully. I mean, it is a theology in which the unrelenting love of God sits at the center of everything as it's been revealed to us through the, the life, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our task as human beings is to grow in our understanding of that love, our ability to embody that love. But again, we are growing in our understanding out of joy, out of a recognition of its truth, but not because we're trying to earn our way into heaven or avoid hell. It is simply a witness to the reality of that love. Now, for me, from early in my life, along with this theology of love in my family, was hand in hand with it a very activist orientation towards social justice issues. I think of social justice as what love looks like when it's put into action. When love is put into action, love seeks fullness of life, human thriving, and it seeks a just and beautiful world for all persons and for our planet. So as one expands their understanding of love and views the world through that lens, you can't help but see the places of injustice as places where we need to be doing the work of reparation and healing and reorganization and reform and reframing and revolution to make it so that the light of love shines everywhere. You know, the ending up at Union as the president, I like to say I think I have the best job in the world for someone who has particularly my theology because it's a school that getting close to 200 years has put this combination of a Christian centrality of love and universal goodness tightly woven together with a commitment to social justice. Now, in the book, you say you want to avoid being too specific about the way in which grace will finally work out everything. But in an email correspondence between the two of us, you wrote, I do believe that God will bring all things to a good end through Jesus Christ. The only thing I caution against is our trying to figure out in advance what that good end looks like or feels like. It will be good, joyous, wonderful. Beyond saying and reveling in this strong affirmation, it is mere speculation as to the specifics of what this means. We can't figure out what color the walls will be. 
We need to trust in God's grace and find certainty in God's eternal love. So could you say a little bit more about this? Yes, and uh, you asked me, I think, a very good question about what I mean by that. And it's not a skepticism on my part about any limit to the love of God and the universal good to which we're all brought. Uh, It's just my own hesitation and a hesitation we've seen throughout the history of the Christian church to say too much about what that looks like, as if we are in the position as these very conflicted, often limited in our view and knowledge of the world around us and of ourselves, that we can project out of ourselves the minute details of what that good that God promises us consists of. It should be enough for us to know that God knows even better than we do what the good consists of, and that in that good, we shall revel. Well, one of the things that, you know, I can start to feel, especially when you start looking at the injustice of the world, is there are certain people that just seem so bent on oppressing others and marginalizing others. As a matter of fact, they seem to get joy from it. They seem to revel in putting people down and uh, smashing people down and humiliating them. And for some, it's kind of bracing, especially people who have been on the on the receiving end of this oppression. It's kind of bracing to hear the idea that that somehow God's grace extends even to these people, in, even to these horrible, horrible oppressors, and that God's plan and grace extends equally to them, even in spite of all of the horrible things that they've done. So how do you handle that in your thinking? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that what you've just described is absolutely intelligible, understandable. All of us have had experiences in which um, we like to, and it's almost like a reflex, think, well, God's going to get them because that was really horrible what they did to me. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. even if I don't see justice in the world right now, and no one ever holds this person accountable, God's going to hold them accountable and punish them. And it's a big emotional relief. And it's a way of making your way forward in life to think that ultimately there will be some judgment and justice in God that consists of punishment. But what I've come to see in my own theology in terms of the universality of love is why is it that as human beings, we need the ability to imagine our enemies punished in order for us to somehow feel righteous about our own goodness or our ability to launch a critique of unjust actions. We can talk about the righteousness of social justice and activism. Um, We can talk about the injustices that we confront and the oftentimes horrible actions that lead to injustice in the people behind them without having the big stick of eternal damnation behind it in order to make claims that are deep about social injustice. I think the ultimate irony is, is that you can't finally damn yourself (laughs) <laughs> um, and so you've taken the power away from the oppressors when you when you come to the truth that they can't even damn themselves. God ultimately wins in this. And uh, as I've looked at some of the early church uh, writings, uh, on er- some of the early church scholars and, and thinkers, they had the idea that, that God had coming, potentially many, many coming ages in which to work these things out, and that God would not fail to 
bring people to a full understanding of what they had done. And there would be, there would be some kind of repentance that would be necessary. So it's, it's, this isn't the idea of people getting off without coming to terms about exactly, about exactly what they've done. That's not, that's not what you're suggesting. You're just suggesting that God has an awful lot of room to work this all out without having to condemn people to some kind of eternal conscious torment, which is retributive and not restorative. Yes. Yes. Another important part of this is in our limited human lives, we don't always even understand the full scope of injustice that I'm aware every single day that I'm presently participating in innumerable injustices that 50 years from now are going to be clear to all of my grandchildren and all those who follow after me that I'm completely unaware of, that aren't even in the frame of reference for what I think about in terms of what human and planetary thriving consists of. And if we're going to limit God to what we understand in terms of what is just and unjust, then we've really constrained our sense of what happens over time and space, as you said, in the ages left to unfold the truth of all of this. Yeah, when I first started studying oppression, one of the first things I realized was that, well, if you take a global picture of things, just by me being a white male in the first world and being the beneficiary of unjust economic and social systems that had developed over centuries, that just my just my very way of life contains all kinds of injustices that I'm not even I can't even process. And that was yes. a big that was a big eye opener for me. Yes. And we're we're too accustomed in Christianity of thinking of sin or thinking of injustice as um, resulting only from conscious action. And oftentimes uh, some of the most sinful things we participate in, we do so unaware, and we do so because of our complicit co-optation into huge social structures that define us. And just uh, one more thing on this topic. I think that it's one of the things that's really important to me about all of this is if somebody embraces a kind of idea of a universal, God's universal love and grace for all people, and they start to think, Somewhere down the line, we're all going to be reconciled to each other. What that does is it de-escalates violence, it avoids scapegoating, and it makes us consider how counterproductive an us versus them approach is. And if people can just see that, and if that's the spirituality out of which they're operating, to me, that's just a giant leap forward in all kinds of ways. Absolutely. The belief that some go to heaven and some go to hell gives us constantly in our imaginations and in our actions a dualistic world where everything is judged as either good or bad, deserving of punishment, deserving of reward. And anyone who reflects even for a moment on the reality of our lives knows that that is destructive. And if we can get rid of that way of thinking, a whole realm of imagination and action opens up. Well, one thing I found surprising on my own journey is how much I've ended up agreeing with some of the basic insights of John Calvin, especially his ideas about salvation being by grace alone and how God is sovereign with regard to the ultimate destiny of humanity. I don't agree with all of Calvin, but I've ended up having more resonance with him than I thought I ever would. 
And in reading your book, I discovered that Calvin has ended up being a kind of lifelong discussion partner on your spiritual journey. So could you tell us more about this? Yes. People are always amazed to find out that in addition to my disciples' background, John Calvin has probably had the most profound impact on my understanding of the reality of God and the call of the Christian life. I first found myself falling into the theology of John Calvin, although I had grown up knowing about it, but as myself a theologian, um, having returned from over a year spent in India and the Philippines during the 1980s and was back in the United States in seminary trying to make sense of the massive social injustices that I had uh, been witness to um, and lived amidst. And I opened up the pages of Calvin's very famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, and began to read his introduction. And he's writing a letter to the King of France, and he is arguing that the king should stop persecuting the massive numbers of people who were considered to be followers of John Calvin. He basically says, we are a peaceful people. We do not want to harm, but we are being persecuted for our religious belief. That sent me into the reading of the history of the context in which Calvin was writing. And it soon became clear to me that Calvin was writing to a group of very oppressed Uh, marginalized, isolated, exiled, at that time referred to as evangelical or Calvinist Christians. And he was articulating a theology designed to support and uplift those who had no relationship to social power, but were basically on the run from the government. Many of them had prices on their head. They were considered seditious. They were heretics can't think of enough bad words to use for the followers of Calvin, and he's trying to support them. He's a 16th century liberation theologian trying to say, hang in there. God loves you. The sovereignty of God is so powerful that whatever the world says about you, that love endures. Now, one of the things about Calvin is that I appreciate his insistence about grace, that salvation is by grace alone. And his insistence about that, I I began to found pretty persuasive in his ideas about the sovereignty of God, that God ultimately knows and understands the outcome of this world and will not be surprised by how it turns out. I found those ideas pretty persuasive. But then on the other hand, there were some things about Calvin that I was troubled by. He, uh, He used violence against this man, Servetus, who he had a disagreement with. And he had this doctrine of total depravity connected with an Augustinian sense of original sin and a transference of guilt. And he had a sense of limited atonement connected with his idea that God did not actually intend a good ultimate outcome for all. And he also affirmed the eternal torment of the damned and even of unbaptized infants, as I understand him. So I have this tension with Calvin. How do you work through all of that? Well, I have a tension with Calvin as well. He was a person of his time, and it's not, you don't have to look very far in reading Calvin to find things that are repulsive to us in today's context. 
his God, just to add to the list, is definitely God the Father, this mm-hmm. righteous, sovereign, patriarchal figure, um, which is not the God to whom I attribute the understanding of love that we've been discussing. Um, I could go through each of those very important themes that you raised and talk about how I think Calvin's theology ultimately undermines them. But I want to come to one in particular, and that's the notion of total depravity. Um, At first, when I read Calvin, I thought, this is horrible. How can he think human beings are this bad? But the more I dug into the doctrine of total depravity, the more I understood it as a doctrine in which Calvin is trying to explain to us that as human beings, there's no place that we can go in the world And there's no secret hidden place within us that can be guaranteed as free from the negative impact of the social structures of sin that we have created. And those are all pervasive. Now, to say they're all pervasive, to say it totally, its reach is total, is not to say that there is no goodness It's just to say that the reach is total in the sense there is no place you can run from to find a guaranteed spot of righteousness. One of my favorite Calvin scholars, Edward Dowie, used to say, the best way to understand total depravity is to understand as if we are a glass of clear water. And imagine sin as the drop of green ink that is dropped into that water. It goes everywhere in the water, but it doesn't stop the water from being its good created water self. So that's more the way in which I understand the total depravity. But I also think when it comes to theologians, um, I have yet to find one that I agree with everything they say. And over time, any theologians with whom we shouldn't rightly have Um, some bones to pick and some arguments to have. Well, that was one of the things that happened to me sort of ironically in my theological journey through up until almost I was 50, I guess, I just kind of thought, well, you know, God has given us Christ. God's given us the Holy Spirit and the scriptures, and God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering and will do everything that's possible to do But finally, we're going to have to make a decision at some level that God can't make for us. And if we don't ever make that decision, then we could very well potentially be lost forever. And then, well, that that sounds very, that sounds very disciples. And in a way, the whole free will, the kind of frontier, make your own way, you know, self-determination. On the other hand, I started, then I started to wrestle with this idea I'd, I'd been preaching and you know, telling people well, salvation is by grace. It's not something that we earn. But then I realized I had something in my theology that wasn't consistent. And so if I'm going to say that, that salvation is not something that we earn, well, that means something. That means that it's God from beginning to end. And that there's this is not something that I'm capable of, but it is something that God is capable of. And if God is capable of it for me, then why can't God be capable who can't God be capable? Who can't, you know, who who could be excluded from this? So in a way, I kind of put together things from theologies that I didn't agree with into a theology that I did agree with, which I then 
found out had some resonance with some voices in the early church. And so this idea of a grace that is pervasive for all people and finally reconciles the whole creation, I found out isn't really a new idea. It's an old idea, but I hadn't really studied the ancient church fathers very much. And so I was really impressed when I started looking more into Gregory of Nyssa and Origen and some other early thinkers who had this kind of bold idea about a universal reconciliation. Yes. And you've just described the work of theology for every generation. It's taking bits and pieces from what's come before and putting them together in new ways that are hopefully more enlightening and expanding, which also means going back and finding these parts of our Christian imagination that uh, may be um, 1,500 years old, um, Mm -hmm. 2,000 years old, and yet have a kernel of truth in them that we've lost and need to reclaim. And I do think that the affirmation, strong and persistent, of the unmerited character of God's grace inextricably leads one to a notion of universal salvation. Well, one of the things that is unique about Union Theological Seminary is that it's independent. And, you know, mostly theological institutions are indebted in one way or another to a specific denomination and have some boundaries because of that on what they can teach and what they can and and what can be said. And so at Union Theological Seminary, a person would be free to look over the entirety of the history of the Christian tradition and find those voices and to put together a theology with that entire view and to really have that be their own project, not something that you at Union are telling them they have to come up with, but to really do their own best thinking. And that just sounds like a really dynamic environment to me. It is. It's so dynamic and alive, and the questions of social justice are always burning at the forefront of our thinking, driving us forward with the whole rich history of Christianity unfolding before our students, often for the first time, our biblical texts being opened up and viewed in new ways. And one of the most exciting parts of Union for me is the presence now of uh, Buddhist and Jewish and Muslim and Hindu voices. Uh, It's so interesting to see that when other religious traditions come into conversation with you, the power of those traditions to open doors for you to see your own tradition in new and different ways. So it just keeps becoming a bigger, more complex and more brilliant and compelling picture of what we're called to do and be. I love it. My my wife, uh, Amy, received her PhD from the University of Chicago in the history of Christianity. She now teaches religious in the religious studies department at Missouri State University in Springfield. And she has started teaching their introduction to world religions. And so putting Christianity into a context where it's not just studied in isolation, but where you're able to bring different voices and where you're able to find some surprising resonance is a, has been a really interesting experience for her just professionally and spiritually. And so you're getting to actually sort of live that out in a, in a seminary context. So that's, that's really fascinating. Yes. It's wonderful. And there's points of resonance, points of dissonance, and it's almost like a kaleidoscope points where you just completely see something that's been before you all, 
your life, but you see it differently when you view it through the eyes of someone who doesn't have the same shape of imagination as you do when you come to it. Now, one of the great challenges in life is dealing with our own pain and discovering our own complicity in the oppression and pain of others. And your book takes a very personal approach to these issues. Could you tell us more about this journey for you? Well, in my most recent book, Call It Grace, the initial aim in writing the book was to create a sort of primer for students who could be introduced to major figures in theology and explain basic theological concepts in very down-to-earth and ordinary language. I found as I began to write the book that I couldn't really explain what these concepts meant without turning to practical examples and stories. And the ones, of course, I knew best were stories from my own life. And as I began to unpack those stories in relation to deep Christian commitments and concepts, I began to have to wrestle with and be honest about not only my life, but all of our lives, how complicated they are, how messed up our, our, our family traditions are in every family, um, how messed up our nation is in its history, and how conflicted and oftentimes violent we have been um, as a nation with respect to, in particular in my book, the genocide of Native Americans and the 300-year history of chattel slavery and our inability even now as a nation to come to grips with the depth of that horror. And instead of projecting that out there as a kind of abstract concept, I investigate my own family and my own life as implicated in that history. Um, I tell a story about my own surprise at in a lecture hall in New Haven at Yale, seeing the postcard of a lynching in Oklahoma in 1911 in the town that my family was from, a story I had never heard. And as I began to open that up uh, and was able not to find out anything about it. I had to ask questions about complicity. Was my family part of this? How could they not be? But why is there no record of it? And the whole book is, in a sense, a, a series of these moments where what I thought looked one way as a child, now that I am adult, I see through the glass differently. And as my faith has been weathered and reshaped in a kind of constant wrestling, parts of our brokenness and parts of our glory and parts of my own brokenness and my own glory. Anyway, all of this is to say I, in this book, am committed to being brutally honest about my own life, my own context growing up as child of white privilege in Texas and Oklahoma and what it means to come to grips with that legacy. When I think often of academic books, books written by PhDs, I think of them not usually in the way that your book was was written because it felt much more like I was going on a journey with you throughout your whole life where you had these realizations break in on you sort of progressively along the way. And so it wasn't just like, oh, this is a theological book. It is a theological book, 
but it's more like what happens to us in life. Yeah. And when you have certain, when you look back in the rearview mirror and you suddenly see something that like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was actually part of that or that some way I was complicit in mm-hmm. all of this. And so you don't make, the bad guys aren't other people in your book. You were, you were right in the midst of all of this, on the one hand, trying to develop a, a stronger sense of social justice, but in the same in the same sense, realizing how enmeshed you are in injustice. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that came through very clearly in the book. Yes, no, I I am not I do not come out as a hero by any means. I'm always interrogating myself with with great humility. And I think it's a disposition that any honest Christian who accepts and lives in the grace of God is empowered to do, to be honest about who they are. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's that that's going on right now is that there are a lot of people that are suffering from a lot of sense of great despair. Uh, there's a rise in suicides and opioid drug use. People are looking to the future and seeing climate change and political instability. And when it comes to thinking about God, the, the, some of the loudest voices that they've heard about God have been these kinds of dualistic voices that that aren't offering a hopeful vision of some kind of future, great grand future for all of humanity. So what encouragement could you give to someone who is beginning to believe God's purposes in creation might actually be an ultimate restoration of creation, which brings everyone and all of creation into a glorious shared destiny? What what could you what encouragement could you give to somebody who's maybe beginning to dare to believe that this could be something that they could believe in a way they could approach God and the Christian faith? My encouragement is that accepting the reality that you are beloved regardless of how you judge yourself or how you look at the source of your hope that day by glancing around the world and seeing what a mess it is, that that love of God is greater and more expansive and deeper than whatever your mind may be seeing or doing and the judgments you may be making. It's enormously freeing and liberating. And it has the power to lift despair because it, in a sense, puts us in the right place. It puts us in a place of knowing that we are beloved, that we are valuable, and that all of us are rightful heirs of that grace. It makes the world, in a sense, feel at the same time lighter because it is not your job to go out there and have to fix everything and behave perfectly in order for you to achieve some ultimate salvation, get to heaven, but rather that you're job in the world is to shine the light of love as best you can, work against injustice as best you can, knowing that ultimately it is God who redeems, who pulls us all into that ultimate salvation. It's interesting, by lifting the judgment from our shoulders, uh, the sense of despair and the sense of how could this possibly come to a good end because it seems so despairing in these days that we find ourselves, to lift that from your shoulders and to turn it over to God is enormously freeing, enormously freeing, and the source of great joy and beauty. It's not finally up to us. 
Well, there is a kind of, um, with your way of thinking and your theology, there's a kind of optimism and joy and love that shines through. And so to me, that's important because when you're dealing with things that are difficult and painful and hard, you, you have to have that working alongside so you can sort of bear up to all of it. And then if you can have underneath the whole idea that somehow the grace of God is working its way through all of these things and that God's grace finally will not be defeated in any of our lives. To me, once I started thinking that way, people who I would have maybe, let's just say, enjoyed demonizing a little bit, didn't seem to enjoy demonizing them anymore because I just would say to myself, well, they're just sick and their illness is different than mine. Maybe if I'd grown up in their shoes, I'd be even worse than than they are. And one day I imagined myself being reconciled with them. Now, in the meantime, I might disagree with them. I might have a different idea than they do, but I don't ever have to imagine them as some kind of eternal enemy that I mm -hmm. wish to be rid of. It's just my brother who I hope, I look forward to the time that that he is healed and well, and I am too, and we all are, and we can all look back on this and have learned the lessons of love from it. And once I started thinking that way, it made it made it just much easier for me to engage in the world without feeling I had to be angry or bitter with people who were taking, let's just say, a different different point of view than I was. Yes, it does lift the burden of the need to use hatred to fuel your work for justice. Yes. Um, it's much more empowering to use love to fuel your work of justice. Yeah, I think Martin Luther King said that that all the techniques that he that he taught would not work unless you actually loved mm -hmm. people. Yeah. That that you could take all these techniques and you could do them, but if you didn't actually if there wasn't love that was actually fueling the whole thing, then the transformation wouldn't take place. Yes. And it's not actually ultimately sustainable in one's life. If you engage in the work of justice fueled solely by hatred or a sense of retribution or dri driven by a notion that there'd be ultimate punishment, you burn out pretty quickly because that is not a sustainable life and it's not a joyous life. Well, Dr. Jones, I want to thank you for taking some time to visit with us on the podcast today. I want to encourage people to Look at your book, call it grace, and to uh, reflect more deeply on what grace might mean in all of our lives. So thank you again for your time. And David, thank you again for this wonderful discussion and for this podcast and for all the work you're doing to spread this good news. May you be blessed in all that you do. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced. Mm -hmm.